welcome to the Greener Grass Podcast from Bluebird Botanicals. I'm your host, Lex Pelger. Hello, everyone. Today we dive into an important area of cannabis law, the patent system. We'll talk with Beth Schechter of the Open Cannabis Project about their work confronting the corporate monopolization of cannabis strains. It's a complicated topic, and we'll put links into the episode notes with more information. But before we get to the interview, I just wanted to remind everyone that Bluebird will be at NOCO this year. So if you're headed to Loveland, Colorado this weekend for the huge Hemp Expo, you can find me there answering people's science questions. Or if you can't make it, feel free to email me at greenergrasspodcast at gmail.com with any of your cannabis science questions. Now, here's Beth. This show is brought to you by Bluebird Botanicals to spread education about cannabis and other things on the greener side of life. Bluebird CBD oil comes from farms in southern Colorado and is grown using only water, soil, and sunlight. Go to bluebirdbotanicals.com for more info. I'm pleased to be here with Beth Schechter from the Open Cannabis Project. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Lex. Before we dove into what you're doing now, I was curious about what you were doing before with map time and open source map making. What was that project like? Oh, man. Oh, I'm so glad that you asked. So uh, map time is a project that was born out of a need to get more women involved in open source map making. At the time that I started it, I was working at a really wonderful data visualization studio called Stamen Design, um, which is one of the pioneering and like one of the, sorry, I will start over. Um, Stamen basically pioneered data visualization and brought it into the mainstream. So it was great to be working with them. But I really wanted to be making my own maps and doing my own data visualization And I wanted to learn more about the process because at the time I was doing business development and frankly, to do my job better, I wanted to have a better understanding of maps. So um, at one point, I also learned that apparently something like only 3% of contributors to OpenStreetMap, which is basically uh, like the Wikipedia of maps, uh, only 3% of people who were contributing were women. And not only was that just kind of depressing, but there were actual Uh, real implications for that. For example, uh, there were something like, you know, 12 different categories for like brothel, but then, you know, childcare didn't have its own category at all. So clearly there was a bias that was being presented in the data due to a lack of, um, a lack of diversity in contributors. So I decided that I wanted to change that. I wanted to be a better contributor. So I want, I decided to get together with some friends and basically start going through some of these really complicated open source map making tutorials. And, you know, before I knew it, my little weekly meetup had a, uh, had a wait list and um, I'd started to get some outreach uh, from other people across the country. Actually, there's a really wonderful woman here in Portland, Oregon named Lizzie Diamond And she, you know, she was one of the first people to ask, like, hey, I really like your idea. I'm kind of doing something similar already. Uh, Can we join forces? And the answer was yes. And so and so map time was born and it started in San Francisco and then it went to Portland and there was a group of people in Cleveland. And I think that at our busiest, we had 60 chapters of people all over the world who were getting together for the purpose of making maps together. Um, 
And, you know, it was still primarily, you know, so in terms of the goal of getting more women involved, you know, it was interesting uh, to see that there were very, very many, um, there's still a lot of men who showed up, but there were also a lot of women. And some of them went on to have uh, professional careers in open source map making. And so um, I'm really proud of that. What a great project. So it, it sounds like it's the cartographic underground. Yes. It is kind of a cartographic underground. Um, and I think the the other sort of piece of it was not only to get more people involved, but it was really, you know, designed to be a safe space for people to learn. I think that when it comes to any kind of, you know, subject where, you know, maybe it's underground or, you know, weed is kind of like that, actually, like there's sort of a mystique to weed and there's people who know a lot and, you know, don't necessarily like always want to share all of their information and, you know, in the technology world, there's a little bit of that, too, of, you know, like, and I, I feel like this has been changing a lot in the past few years. But, you know, when Math Time really started, you know, if you were to go on a forum um, and ask a really basic question about technology, you might be met with a really helpful answer, or you might be met with someone who's like, why didn't you know this? Like, you should just do this. You're a noob. Like, what are you doing? And, you know, that's not an inviting place for people to learn. That's a, that's the kind of thing that, you know, that's really all about just making somebody else feel smarter. So, you know, it kind of was a little bit of an underground, but it was also like a pretty fierce statement to say, like, we want to have safe spaces for learning and we want to have educational materials that don't assume that we already know how to install a, um, a geo like a geo database directly onto our um, onto our computers, right? So, um, and actually, as a result, I you know I've now seen um, you know many companies in the open source map making world have really put a lot of effort into creating really good resources for using their tools. So, for example, like Carter DB is an open source map making company. They now go by Cardo. They have really great um, learning resources, and so does Mapbox. Um, which is another open source map making platform. So yeah, it was it was sort of an underground, but also a statement and a statement that I think changed the industry a little bit, which is great. And so how did those tools that you learned there, how did that help you in your transition to running the Open Cannabis Project? Oh, man, I am so, you know, there's a there's a chart that someone shared with me once, which was like, you know, what people think that success is. And, you know, there's just like a, a graph that goes from like the, the zero, zero starting point and just goes straight up to like success. And that's what success is. But what anybody who has had any success will tell you is that before that success, there's like failed experiment, failed experiment, failed experiment. And like the chart is more all over the place. So, you know, I think that we did a lot of great work at Map Time and as a project that became really big, really quickly, and really unexpectedly. Like, I didn't start this project with the, with any expectation that it would become a thing, much less like a multi-city thing. So I was, you know, I was definitely not prepared for some of the, you know, intellectual property questions that might come up or the administrative questions that might come up or what it would mean to really try and provide support to people who were doing work really asynchronously all over the place. And so, you know, we, with map time, map time scaled very quickly and did not really have the kind of infrastructure that it really needed to support it. Um, and so, you know, stepping into uh, running the open cannabis project, 
I have really spent the past like few months really focusing on building our infrastructure. So, you know, we have all of our, you know, our bylaws and our articles of incorporation check. We have our, we have our own bank account, which is something that was, is actually harder to do as a nonprofit, as you might think, there's a lot of tiny steps. MapTime never had a bank account. We just operated sort of like all over the place. Um, so we have that. And then, so with that sort of like paperwork and financial sort of basis, you know, we also have a sp- fiscal sponsor through MAPS. We, uh, I redid the website and fixed some security bugs that were there um, and really set, I really have set the foundation for going out and doing um, really good work. Um, the other thing that I learned from map time is that, you know, I really, I have to say, I am forever grateful to every single volunteer who ever helped with that project. And if any of them happen to listen to that, I really hope that they hear that from the bottom of my heart, because there's no way that that project would have been what it, what it would have been without them. At the same time, I see without a doubt, the importance of paying people who are working for you. I want to make sure that I'm building the organization in such a way to where I can compensate people that they work that they do. And, you know, like right now, we, uh, we've just hired a developer to do um, some of our basic uh, infrastructure redo because we're rebuilding the database right now. Um, and I can give him a stipend, I can give him a small contract. And, Um, That feels, even though it's not as much as I'd like to pay him, like, I'm really glad that I can do that. I'm really glad that I can give a little bit of money to our bookkeeper and to, um, and to another person who's helping us with some fundraising. So that's something that I'm really doing, that I'm really trying to do differently here as much as possible. And I know that it won't always be possible to pay people um, to help us, but for doing these like core operations-based tasks, I'm really trying to focus on, okay, let's make sure that we are creating something that um, not only is, you know, not only are we going to do good work, but I want to be able to do good work and to be able to comp- to compensate the people who are showing up on the regular and doing some of the hard, not always fun stuff, which is like, you know, cleaning up bugs and that kind of thing. Um, at the same time, I am hoping to have more volunteer opportunities in the future as well, because, you know, unless, you know, unless seven digits drop into my place, I mean, no matter what I do, I'm still going to have to rely on volunteers. So, but I'm starting off with a better set of infrastructure and, um, and with people who are really supporting the mission. And so, yeah, so I'm hoping to make this as a safe and awesome playing field that everyone can participate in. And uh, I'm glad to say that we have a lot of the infrastructure that we need to support that. And can you tell us now the mission of the Open Cannabis Project and and maybe a little bit of how it came together? Yeah, sure. The Open Cannabis Project really has two primary missions. Uh, The key mission is this uh, mission that has to do with uh, patents and all of these patents that are coming out. Um, And, you know, Patents are one of those things that people have a lot of feelings about. There are some people who are like, patents are great. I totally want them to patent my strain. And there are some people who think that patents are just like the devil and should never happen. Um, As with most things involving the truth, it's likely somewhere in between the two. Um, One of the main concerns that we have, though, is about um, patents that are coming out that contain language such as um, we... Uh, we make a claim not only on 
are on this one specific strain that we have bred, but we are making a claim on a whole bunch of plants that are similar, right? So those patents are kind of overreaching. Um, it's the similar, it's a, uh, Monsanto and other larger entities use similar kinds of patents to um, basically create a monopoly for certain types of inventions. And so for cannabis, this is that's just a little bit weird. Um, and I don't think that anyone really wants that, right? Like it's, it's, I never want to think about a farmer who has worked their ass off and, you know, and really like had to like put their livelihood and their lives at risk to grow this plant to ever be met by some cease and desist order from someone that they've never met to do something that they've always been doing. So that is, that's one of the main things that we are trying to work against. Um, and then that's the, then that's sort of the primary mission is to create enough prior art through open data, enough evidence of all of the cannabis plants that have existed for quite some time so that, um, so that patent examiners and people who are issuing patents or even lawyers who might be assisting people who are issuing patents have a clear understanding of what's already in the public domain um, so that the patents that they, uh, and if it's already documented to be in the public domain, then a patent examiner is likely going to reject that patent application. So it's, so, which brings us to sort of the second mission of the Open Cannabis Project, which is also just to create a really awesome, robust open data set about cannabis so that we can see in aggregated form what, what it is that we've been growing because right now, I, data is kind of all over the place. It's in a lot of different formats. And some people are, uh, you know, you can get your hands on data from maybe one lab or another lab. And if they've decided to share it, which they might not have, and that's, you know, a whole other discussion. Um, and you can maybe make some, you can draw some conclusions based on that data set. But you can't really, but you're only seeing like one piece of the pie. You know, every lab, like nobody who creates data makes perfect data. And certainly there are some people in the industry who probably do it a lot better than the others. Um, until we can see those lab results in aggregate, like how do we know how different labs are skewing in one way or another? Like how can we, how can we figure out like, oh, is it or is it not true that this, a strain that we call Gorilla Glue always produces, uh, you know, chemovar results, like within a certain tolerance or range. So in addition to the patent piece of it, which is important, there's another piece of it, which I also think is incredibly important, which is providing an open data set for the cannabis community and for the, um, for the scientific and academic community to be able to, to look at and, um, and do some analysis with. So it's really in everybody's interest to to share their data and to be a part of the project. And so can you give a little bit of history about uh, agriculture and the use of patents on crop varieties that have happened um, in other spheres and how that hints at some problems that might come up in the cannabis world? Sure. And um, I'm going to tell the story of Monsanto primarily because Monsanto is something that a lot of people are familiar with. Um, that said, I also want to make it really clear, like at this time, I have no knowledge of Monsanto actually going out to patent weed or of a similar entity who is working in the same way of Monsanto. So I, but we have, we can look at what they've done or what's happened in uh, 
soybean and also corn production through Monsanto projects through Monsanto products that show us where some of the potential problems for cannabis might lie. So, um, so Monsanto is really well known for, uh, for a number of things. And one of them is uh, these seeds that you can grow that are Roundup ready. And Roundup is a Monsanto brand of pesticide. Um, and you can grow and they sell a certain type of genetically modified seed that you can grow. And when you grow the seed, then um, it's, uh, I think it, it works really well with the, pesti- with the pesticide and, um, and that's great. And so if you're like a large scale farmer and that's how you're, how you're doing it, then it's actually kind of a great little package to have. Part of the problem is the, is the reach of the patents that they have on these seeds. And the problem is that, and part of where the issue has sort of come up is that so let's say that you have two neighboring farms and one farm is across and there's a big highway that sort of is in between the two farms. And on one side of the highway is a bunch of Roundup Ready corn that's growing. And on the other side is like, you know, Farmer Joe's like same corn he's been growing forever. Um, some wind comes over and blows some of the seeds from one side of the highway to the other side of the highway, now suddenly you have patented seeds that are being used, used without purchase. And so Monsanto then says, oh, hey, those are our seeds. You're supposed to give us money. To be totally honest, I don't even know how they figure this out, but it's a whole thing. And now suddenly a farmer who never purchased those seeds, never wanted to purchase those seeds, is now being given a cease and desist order for growing the seeds or paying some, paying some fine to Monsanto for doing so. So that's a really big problem, right? And it's something that's cost farmers a lot of money. And it's part of how Monsanto has been able to get such a huge hold uh, over the agricultural industry. Um, you could imagine something similar with cannabis. So in, you know, you could imagine a, patent out there that says, hey, we make a claim to, you know, all weed that has 17% THC and 4% CBD. And that relates to, you know, this plant that we've made using these methods, blah, 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 blah. Anything that's similar belongs to us. Anything that's bred with it belongs to us. Um, It could potentially be a really big problem. So we, and the truth is, is that we've seen this not only in agriculture, we've seen it in e-cigs, we've seen it in the beef industry. Um, I mean, patent wars are everywhere and really the only people who can win in them are the folks that are, well, one, either the person who is hopefully going to get a lot of money through enforcing their patent um, by, you know, either getting more market share or putting someone else out of business you know, and also some of the lawyers who are defending them. Fighting these patents are really, really, really expensive. Getting a patent is really expensive. So, you know, though we have not seen this yet in the weed industry, um, the potential and history is certainly there. So, but we can prevent it by sharing our data, which is really great. And in doing so, stop applications, stop patent applications, while they're being filed versus after they've been 
accepted because once they're accepted, it becomes a really big, expensive hair, hairy mess to fix. So finding prior art is, and prior art is the term for the, these, the genetic code of these plants. So prior art can actually mean a lot of different types of things, depending on the type of patent that you are issuing. So, and within our work, there are two primary types of patents that really apply to cannabis plants. One of those patents is called a plant patent, and it really only refers to like a specific plant and its genetic material. So um, it would be, it's it's the same kind of plant or it's the same kind of patent that you would use for something like, you know, my family's. Uh, heirloom geraniums, this, you know, we have a patent on this. We are only, we are able to breed it because we have these special conditions at our farm. Um, and so we own an exclusive right now to basically sell clones, right? And so we're the only ones who are allowed to sell the clones or we can have someone pay for a license to sell the clones. So it's really a marketing, it's kind of, a, it's both a marketing tool and then also a way to make a little bit of money through licensing fees. And it's not that big of a deal. And so prior art for those kinds of plants are plants with the same genetic traits. For utility patents, they cover not only the genetic piece of the puzzle, um, they also include um, the processing that is used to create a certain outcome, as well as um, it can also increase in scope to include plants that are similar um, and plants that have similar characteristics. So when it comes to utility patents and prior art, you're actually looking at more than just the genetics. You're looking at genetics as well as process, as well as the chemotype output for these plants. And so within that, but prior art can also then include things like, you know, like any kind of evidence that you have to show that you're, that a plant existed in the public domain prior to this patent application being filed or prior to this patent being issued. Um, that is, that's what prior art is. So it can actually be a number of different things. For our purposes, we are primarily, we have genetic information and um, we started, you know, you asked a little bit about the history of the company. Um, it was initial, or the history of the project. It was initially started by Phylos Bioscience. And then late last year, they realized that in order for this nonprofit to do what it needed to do, it needed to be an independent entity and really a safe space for, you know, multiple labs to come together. And, you know, I know that there's a lot of competition in the cannabis lab world, so folks were not necessarily as interested in like, just like sending all their data to Phylos. Like, wait a second, but you're our competitor. Why would we do that? So, you know, part of what we've done is like fully separate ourselves from Phylos and then also to, you know, create our own database, do our own hosting, have all of our own everything so that we can have a safe place to, to, uh, for everybody to really participate in the subject without being biased by one lab over another. Um, so in that, in terms of our, the propagating material that we're collecting, um, the genotype data and the genetic data is really important. Um, but really the most important thing right now is the chemotype data. Part of what I am interested in showing is, and part of what is actually the most important thing for us to show 
is as much data as we can gather um, that goes back as far as possible. So basically, the older the data, uh, the older the cannabis data that we get, and primarily the older the chemotypic uh, cannabis data that we get, the better able that we are to show that, look, we've had cannabis with these specific traits for this amount of time, and it's been a long time. So we're going to start with the lab results. And then from there, we could, I could envision a future where we partner with other organizations who are collecting other types of data. For example, um, the Research Innovation Institute, uh, also here in Portland, collects data about um, through doing evaluations of how people uh, save energy on their farms and all the different ways that they can save energy in their uh, production process and cultivation process, they are also collecting a whole bunch of data about process. And that's super exciting and could also be the beginnings of, um, or could also be something to represent prior art. So prior art can mean a number of different things. And for us right now, we're primarily looking at the genetics and the chemotype portion of it. And can you uh, simply define the a genotype and chemotype, what those mean? Yes. So when I say, and thank you for asking, um, I'm also, I'm realizing that I'm becoming so steeped in this that sometimes I hear myself talk and I'm like, you are sounding like jargon. So feel free to ask all of those questions and I'm happy to answer them. So um, genotype or the genetic data is really specifically um, genetic code. And one of the big questions that we have is how do we represent this? Because um, it's actually, you know, if you look at a single result of genetic code from the uh, NCBI database, for example, which is the database where um, actually labs like Phylos, they publish their data. It's, in that, it's a database that's actually run by um, the National Institute of Health. And, you know, they are just very well set up to collect data on genetics. But if you go and you, you know, ping their API for, you know, a single strain, like a single instance of something that was put into the database, I mean, you get like thousands of rows of like hash code and, you know, that nobody can really, nobody can really make sense of right now unless you are somebody who specializes in interpreting what that code means, which is not very many people. So, um, so the, the genetic data is really these, you know, results from genetic tests that are stored in ways that I'm really still beginning to understand. Um, the chemotype data is actually quite much uh, much more straightforward, and um, it refers to the uh, cannabinoids, so the THC types and THC amounts and THC levels, as well as the CBD types um, and CBD levels that might exist in uh, a plant after it's been cured, um, and, as well as all of the terpenes, you know, and there's like what, like something like 140 or like 200 different types of terpenes that you might find on one of these plants. So yeah, so when we talk about genetics, we're really talking about the, the DNA of the plant. And when we're talking about hemotype data, we're really talking about the levels of cannabinoids like THC and CBD, as well as all of the levels of and, and presence of different types of terpenes. I've read about the University of Mississippi Cannabis Project and how uh, El Sole there looked at how to profile using the terpenes to find out where different plants are coming from, and then they could have a better sense on the sea shipments of whether they were being coming in from Thailand or Afghanistan or somewhere else in the world. 
And so the, it's so terpenes will probably be a pretty important part of what you guys are doing moving forward, I guess. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So one, I want to say thank you for letting me know about that. I just wrote it down and I'm totally going to research it because I have not heard anything about location-based terpene analysis, but that totally makes sense and that's really cool um, and also kind of scary um, depending on how that information is used, but that's true for any kind of information. Um, uh, but yeah, terpenes, uh, you know, in some, of the, in some of the patents that we have been looking at, they make claims not only on, you know, the amount of cannabinoid levels that might be present, so or like a ratio between THC and CBD, but they also look at that in combination with the presence of certain terpenes or terpene amounts that might be greater than or less than certain amounts, which is all the more reason why it's super important for us to collect this data, because, you know, it's it's all the more reason why it's important to collect this data because we need to be able to see all of as much as possible, all of the different types of cannabis that are out there so that we can really understand. And so that, you know, the USPTO and even people who are looking to get patents can better understand what is truly in the public domain and what is not. Um, when you don't have that information, what you end up having to do is um, basically kind of go, you have to take the educated guess route towards getting a patent or towards, um, or towards filing a patent. And that means that either you're having to do independent research or your lawyer or your legal team is doing independent research or um, the, the patent office is doing their own research. And as of right now, that information is just kind of, is either hidden because you know, what's evidence of prior art in this sense is criminal evidence in another, or it's scattered all over the place. So it's really difficult to find. And um, terpenes are becoming more and more important um, throughout the conversations about cannabis and, its, you know, and its benefits. And, you know, and apparently you can use them to figure out location, which is amazing. Um, so, but then they're also really important in this uh, in this patenting conversation and another piece of the pie that we're hoping to put together. And so, since the purpose of your project is keeping cannabis open, has there been patents filed so far that have been worrisome around the cannabis domain? There are, um, and there's uh, one in particular that um, uh, Amanda Chicago Lewis who is an amazing independent journalist. Um, she wrote about it for GQ a couple of years ago. And so I actually recommend um, if anyone is interested in reading more about this, uh, look up uh, GQ, The Great Pop Monopoly Mystery by Amanda Chicago Lewis. And she really dove into it. Um, and there's not very many of these patents that are out there, but there's really only one or two. And part of what is problematic about them, again, is not that it's not that they're a patent on a plant, which, um, you know, some people might think is a little weird, myself included, though, you know, it's it, patents are here to stay and they're not really going to go anywhere. The problem with the, some of the patents that we've seen are, again, that they contain language that are like, we make a claim on plants that have a, you know, either a one to four THC to CBD ratio or a one to five THC to CBD ratio, um, and it has this much mercine or it doesn't have this much mercine. 
And also we make a claim on plants that are similar, plants that are bred with our plants, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, there are some that are coming out that are a little worrisome. Um, there's nothing that's been happened. There's nothing that's happened yet. Uh, however, you know, our role really is to also to be in addition to being a place where for the community to come together and, you know, really talk about what it is that they want to do with their data and how it is that, you know, we as a community want to define our intellectual property rights to the best that we can. So, you know, in addition to being in a place where, you know, really we want the community to come together and have these like discussions about what they want to do with their intellectual property and what they want to do with their data. Um, Another important role that we're serving is to continue to be a watchdog on these patents and to, you know, call bullshit. I mean, there's a lot of fear of patents is out there and honestly, some of it, some of it's unwarranted and some of it is very real. And so we want to be um, a watchdog for that conversation and also for these patents that are coming out. So, and ultimately I'm hoping to make a connection with the USPTO itself to figure out, you know, what's a good system that we can put in place together that can help you, uh, to help keep you from issuing patents that are, um, that are either overreaching or that um, infringe on the public domain. And then, you know, uh, there are also some ideas coming from the legal community about uh, putting together, and I think that this would be great, and I also am not sure the nuts and bolts of how to put this together, but I'm definitely interested in looking into it. Um, putting together like an intellectual property consortium for growers and breeders to basically have a way to like, you know, stamp their weed or something, but to basically have it in such a way that anybody within this intellectual property protection, similar to something like, similar to Creative Commons, where it's like, okay, I made this thing and I offer it freely to the public for sharing and for modifying or whatever. Um, so it would be great to be able to create those kinds of intellectual property definitions together. And, um, I really am interested in that sort of realm of thinking, um, which gets us to figure out ways to, you know, there's some people who want to dismantle the patent system. And I would say that that is likely out of scope for what this little organization can do. Um, but if we can figure out a way for, uh, people who want to grow and breed freely to be able to do so without risking getting a cease and desist. Like I'm really interested in having constructive conversations around that and what it looks like. For the growers who are notoriously uh, scared Mm -hmm. to share their genetic data, how do you convince them that this would be a good thing and in their best interest to do, and it's not going to get their beautifully bred babies stolen? Oh, totally. And that's a, and that's a great question. It's one that we get all the time. Um, and the answer is that I, nobody, nobody can at this time, unless there is a super secret 3d printer weed machine, which I don't even understand how that could even be possible. It's really not possible for somebody to take your genetic data and then create your strain with it. And if they do one, it's probably going to take them more than a year to do so if they if it does take that much time, then it's likely that your weed is already technically in the public domain, and so there's nothing to patent. Um, and B, it's really an imitation game, right? Because we know, or I'm beginning to learn that you know having getting a clone from a certain genetic strain 
does not necessarily, and then growing it does not necessarily mean that you're always going to get the same exact like terpene levels or, um, or cannabinoid levels that, that some other grower might use. Right. So there's a disconnect sometimes between like what somebody has as a genetic and what is output, like what is like hematite output and what the results of curing actually will be. So what I say to those, um, what I say to growers is, you know, I totally, so one, I hear you. And like, you know, the idea of, of publishing your data and having someone steal it from you is terrifying. And I would argue, and I, so what I say is that actually there's within the patenting system as it works currently, there's not, and within, you know, just the realm of scientific possibility, it is not possible for you to steal your data or for, for somebody to steal your data and then steal your IP. It's just, it's really not possible. And they would be protecting themselves from getting a cease and desist later in some kind of way. Yeah, totally. And I mean, and that's, and yes, so that's true. And also because the patenting system is complicated, it's also, it's a bit more complicated than, you know, I wish that I could just be like, yes, give me your data and I will grant you IP protection. And it would be great if one day we could get there. Um, what sharing data does is it produces a clue for the patent office to use to determine prior art. And this is based in something that, so like sharing your data is a form of prior art, but just because you've, just because you've published data about a plant doesn't mean that like, oh, there's no more to this conversation. The data is there. You know, somebody who's looking into a patent infringement from a legal perspective then has to do due diligence to look into, you know, is that data verifiable? Um, is it produced by a, a notable lab? Like, you know, is what this is what this data is what this data is saying actually true? A, and then B. The other question of it is when did it enter the market? Um, and entering the market when it comes to clones, uh, cannabis clones, has to do with um, putting something up for sale and having something enter the marketplace. And that marketplace does not necessarily have to be an open marketplace or like a mall. It can be something that's more private, like something like, you know, like not, I hate this example, but like something like a gun club, you know, like that, you know, whether you're selling something in the open or selling some things to a limited audience, it's still when it enters the market. And that becomes really important because once something new enters the market, there is a one year period it within which it has to be patented, um, after which it's no longer patentable because it's no longer new and something being new is a requirement for patentability. So, um, so yeah, publishing your data is the beginning to figuring out this sort of like prior art discussion. Um, and lab data is actually great because it's it is verifiable and it is traceable and you can find a pathway back to a specific person or plant or process or whatever. Um, but it's not a 100% Band-Aid in the way that I would really like for it to be. Hmm. So the bigger your data gets, the more powerful um, an argument there can be for freeing the plant and keeping it free. Exactly. That's exactly right. Great. And so uh, the last question then would be uh, for anyone out there who would be interested in, in helping or volunteering with your project or donating, um, what, would, what would you tell them? Oh, man. So... 
if you are, so probably one of the biggest things that would be helpful to us right now is if you are a lab, um, consider sharing your data with us. And I would be very happy to talk to you anytime about how to do that in an ethical and safe kind of way. Cause you know, I'm not interested in taking anyone's data without their permission and without the permission of the people who make it. So that's A. If you are someone who has, you know, like a grower or a breeder or a dispensary, if you are someone who is, uh, you know, submitting information to labs and getting data in some case, please encourage your labs to share their data with us because that's also really important. Um, and then finally, if you are in a position where you can donate to the Open Cannabis Project, I would really love that. Um, I, like I said before, I want to be able to pay my staff and, you know, also maybe pay myself a little bit more one day. That would be cool. Um, but, you know, every little bit helps. Um, you know, your money is going towards, you know, creating good relationship with the PTO, hiring really awesome developers, working on data security, and helping us to do outreach with the entire community so that we can actually bring everybody to the conversation. Um, if you want to reach out to me, you can reach, uh, you can uh, email Open Cannabis Project info at opencannabisproject.org. And to make a donation, visit our website, opencannabisproject.org, and click on make a donation, and it will walk you through it. So yeah, the, those are the primary ways to get involved. And then people can also sign up for our newsletter on the site, uh, where we'll be sharing things that are happening in the news, and then also be reporting more about volunteer opportunities as they um, as they arise. Excellent. Well, thank you, Beth, so much for sharing about your work and for putting all the time into making it happen. It's it's really important, and I'm I'm glad to learn more. Oh, thank you so much, Lex. I'm really happy to talk about it, and it's always great to talk to people who are really curious about a complicated subject matter like weed and data and law. Bye. Greener Grass is a Bluebird Botanicals podcast. Their CBD oil supports a healthy body and a strong endocannabinoid system. They've got friendly customer service who can answer any of your questions, and the number is right there at the top of their webpage. But, per the FDA, they won't be able to make any medical claims for these nutritional supplements. That's also the reason you'll hear little about CBD on this show. There's no need for us to add more evidence about CBD when a simple Google search will give you more than you can read in a month of Sundays. So this show covers the cannabis world and more with editorial freedom from Bluebird Botanicals. Thanks for joining the Greener Grass podcast. As always, our audio alchemist is Matt Payne. The Gypsy Jazz theme music comes from Brett Van Donsel. Our beautiful bird sounds are courtesy of Lang Elliott. And I'm your host, Lex Pelger, wishing you a bright green day. <laughs>